Welcome for those of you just joining us to the Cato Institute. This is panel session five of this conference. Um, and this particular panel is entitled Unsustainable Fiscal Policy, the One True Bipartisan Commitment. And I know that this panel is going to be deeply entertaining because they've even put the popcorn out for us uh, uh, for it. And it's actually difficult to think of a topic that's on the one hand so timely, but yet from a policy perspective so out of vogue. This week, the federal debt was in the news um, as its nominal value exceeded the milestone of $31 trillion. Now, as economists, we know these sorts of figures aren't meaningful without uh, context. So if we look for some historic context, the federal debt today stands around 100% of GDP, which is the highest it's been since immediately after World War II. Unlike after defeating the Nazis, however, we don't have the prospect of demobilization slashing spending, and it doesn't look as if there's any, any appetite for running primary budget surpluses for a quarter century as we did then. Nor indeed do we enjoy the prospect of reaping the low-hanging fruit of greater female labor participation and other factors that boosted economic growth in those immediate two to three decades. In fact, with an aging population interacting with entitlement programs, debt is projected to soar on most assumptions in the coming decades. These are not debts that can be inflated away. A lot of them are inflation-proof promises to pay social security benefits and the real healthcare demands of Medicare. And that's before uh, the odd crisis, which seems to hit with an alarming regularity, adds uh, a debt to GDP of about 20 percentage points every 10 years. Now, it became uh, somewhat of a conventional wisdom sometime over the past decade that we could be comfortable about a higher level of uh, federal debt because interest rates have been low. Well, the cost of government borrowing has been rising this year and now stands at a similar level for many uh, maturities for treasuries to 2007. So are we at an inflection point? Is this a time to worry about the debt? And what even are we worrying about? What are the implications of a very, very high federal debt burden? Well, few outside of this room in DC seem that concerned, and ascendant political forces don't seem to care much about fiscal sustainability at all. Um, in fact, progressives were pushing for a huge expansion of the social safety net as part of the Build Back Better program. And until recently, of course, a highly expensive Green New Deal National conservatives want to prioritize other things than pesky GDP growth. Uh, they want to curb immigration, for example, one of the few obvious non-fiscal levers where liberalization can perhaps in the near term at least ease these pressures. So on that happy note, to discuss our fiscal prospects, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, four distinguished panelists. We've got Jeff Myron, who's Vice President of Research here at Cato and Director of Graduate and Undergraduate Studies at Harvard's Economics Department. We've got Alan Cole, who's a, a senior economic policy analyst at the Committee for Economic Development. We've got Mark Goldwyn, senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Budget. And last but not least, uh, Ramina Boccia, director of budget and entitlement policy, well, the new director of uh, budget and entitlement policy here at the Cato Institute. Uh, each speaker will have a, up to seven minutes for some opening uh, remarks and then we'll have a moderated uh, conversation. And I'll try to leave as much time as possible for audience Q&A, because I know that this is a topic that really stirs the passion. So on that note, I'll hand straight over to Jeff. Thanks very much. Um, happy to be back up here. 
So I have six points. I'll try to get that in in my seven minutes. First point is that the situation is serious. This is a projection of the debt to GDP ratio for the US going out to 2052. And as it goes all the way back to 1900, you can see that it's projected, it's currently about where it was in World War II. It's projected to be much, much worse. And if you adopted the same assumptions that went into this graph and projected it even further, it just goes up and up and up forever, okay? except it can't actually go up forever. Okay? Now, some people console themselves by saying projections can be wrong. Well, of course, projections can be wrong. They're almost always wrong, at least a little bit. They can be wrong in either direction. Okay? We have some record of how good the CBO's projections have been. In the last 10 or so years, they've been mildly too optimistic. Okay? But of course, that could change. Okay? But there, as Ryan just mentioned, there are tons of things that could happen. The next COVID, World War III, on and on, that could make things much worse than the CBO projections. Okay? So is, it, is there any realistic chance we'll just get lucky and things will go in the better direction? Not much. Second point, faster growth is extremely unlikely to solve the problem. Of course, faster growth is good. Repealing bad regulations and excessive tax rates and all those things are good. But we would need highly implausibly higher growth for it to make a difference. This is, from again, from the CBO data and their forecasting systems. So the solid line in the middle is their projection out to 2052 of what they call their extended baseline. Okay, I won't get in too much in the weeds, but that incorporates their basic assumptions, some of which are imposed on them by Congress. They're supposed to make this forecast based on those assumptions, even though we know those assumptions are not necessarily the most accurate realistic, and that'll come up again in a moment. You can see that you could slow things down, the trajectory of the debt relative to GDP, if we had 0.5 percentage points faster growth per year every single year, that would be a huge improvement in the US growth performance. There's never been that kind of improvement. Average growth okay, is something like maybe two and a half to two and three quarter percent over the long haul for rich developed countries that are at the technological frontier. We're not talking about really, really poor countries that might catch up okay, to the frontier much faster than that, like South Korea did or things like that. So um, getting to that better path Okay, is extremely unlikely, and even that path isn't so great. Even on that path, we're eventually going to have a fiscal crisis. Okay. Third point, if you make more realistic assumptions about the path of spending and taxation than the ones CBO is forced to use in its extended baseline, then things look much worse. Okay. So for example, they're forced to assume something about the discretionary expenditure in the budget relative to GDP, but the historical data would suggest okay, that it's not going to be that low, that it's going to be higher, okay. and so that means the deficits are going to be bigger and the debt is going to grow faster. And you can see, depending on which of their alternatives you consider, things look you know, substantially worse even than their baseline projections. Fourth point. Okay, is that there is something which works to slow the growth of the debt to GDP path to a substantial degree, and that is limiting the growth rate of entitlements. Notice that I said growth rate, okay, that's crucial. Okay, all the level effects on this topic are sort of irrelevant because various things are growing so fast that 
even if they're initially small, they're gonna to grow to become too big relative to everything else. So this assumes that we hold Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, miscellaneous other entitlement programs fixed as a percentage of GDP. Not eliminating these programs, not holding them constant in real dollars, letting them grow in real dollars, but no faster than GDP. And that makes a huge difference. Okay, there's still a very, very, very mild upward trend, but you can easily imagine living with that okay, if you could actually get there. Okay? Now, of course, that's gonna sound like politically suicidal for anyone to endorse, but it's worth noting the following, noting that cutting entitlements would be a good thing to do based on microeconomic principles. What does Medicare do? What does Medicaid do? It subsidizes the purchase of health insurance. Basic economics says, setting aside special cases with externalities, public goods, et cetera, et cetera, we don't want to subsidize or tax any good or commodity or service in the economy. We want to let the free market choose the appropriate level. Roughly speaking, okay, that should apply to healthcare as well. So the US and most rich countries are way over consuming healthcare. So limiting Medicare to a slower path that doesn't grow relative to the size of the economy would almost certainly be in the direction of economic efficiency, okay, a better balancing between the costs of healthcare and the benefits of healthcare. Okay? Same thing for Social Security. We're subsidizing people to take early retirements. We're paying them not to work, reducing productive inputs in the economy. Retirement is a standard good. People can make decisions about when they want to retire the same way they can make decisions about buying tomatoes or cars or houses. There's no reason the government should be taking a stand on that. Disability insurance aside, that might be a very different thing. So in fact, if we could cut Medicare, Social Security, and maybe to a lesser degree Medicaid, okay, those would be good for the economy. It would generate efficiency improvements okay, while also avoiding fiscal meltdown. Last point, I'm <laughs> sorry, I thought I would have blown my time with it. Last point, it's useful to think a little bit about exactly how debt threatens the free economy. One thing that's sort of tempting to think is that say we keep going on the path we're on and eventually what's gonna happen? Interest rates will rise even more than they already have. It'll keep happening. Okay? Countries won't want to borrow to us. They might not even want to roll over our debt, even at very high interest rates, because they just don't think it's ever going to get repaid. So there will be defaults. There will be fiscal chaos. Okay. On one level, that's not all bad. You're never any richer than the second after you default on all of your debts. Okay? Right? You just got rid of all your liabilities. That sort of sounds like a good thing. So why exactly, why shouldn't we have a party now and let especially foreign lenders help pay for it, and then default on them at some point. Okay. Somebody doesn't like my, my okay. I'm not endorsing that, but it's useful to think about that and say, well, exactly what is the problem? What's gonna happen that's bad because of this growing debt path? And there are basically two components. One, once we get to the fiscal crisis, okay, and have a recession and all that because of the high interest rates, we will adopt a ton of really stupid policies, okay, as happened during the Great Depression. Depression has happened during the uh, financial crisis, has happened during the Great Recession more recently. Bad times lead to bad economic policy. So that will be very bad for the economy going forward. Even leading up to okay, the actual crisis, most economies will tend to rely on tax increases and promise to cut expenditure later, but they'll never do it. So that will just make okay, the problem even worse. Okay? And that's also sort of very bad for the overall economy. 
Okay? So bottom line is, okay, we should really, really care about this. And how should we care about it? We should want to cut expenditure. Okay? Raising taxes is gonna make things worse because it slows down the economy. Okay? And the expenditure is mainly stuff that at a minimum libertarians object to in the first place. Okay? So politics aside, the difficulty of getting it passed aside, it's a win-win to slash those entitlement programs. So summing up, the debt problem is real and it's huge. There are no free lunches or easy fixes. As another example, you could zero out all discretionary spending. The entire defense budget, every single program other than Social Security and Medicare, and it will only change that picture a teeny, teeny little bit because those programs are not growing relative to the size of the economy, but Medicare is growing one to 2% a year faster than the economy. That's what leads to the explosive debt. Okay? So the only thing that works is cutting entitlements. The good news is uh, we should do that anyway, but we need to start now. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jeff. I told you you'd need the popcorn. Um, <laughs> Alan, over to you. Well, thank you, Ryan. Um, as, as you've mentioned, the economy has changed a lot since the low interest rate 2010s. And in fact, the U.S. economy of the last year has been characterized by two major trends, both inflation and rising interest rates. Uh, CPI inflation is at 8.3% over the last 12 months. Uh, U.S. 10-year borrowing costs are at 3.8%. And both of those are well above the pre-pandemic figures of about 2.5% and 1.9%, respectively. And both inflation and interest rates essentially have very negative out implications for the fiscal outlook, and they greatly strengthen the case for uh, fiscal consolidation. Um, inflation to date, um, there are two components to that. There's a demand-side component and a supply-side component. Uh, the demand-side component is essentially that, that U.S. dollars are more plentiful. Um, and when you have more plentiful amounts of a currency that can kind of um, change the balance of power between uh, the buyers and sellers of uh, goods and services. Um, you might have thought that in the low inflation 2010s, it often seemed like people who had uh, money to spend um, had more power um, in economic transactions, and now it sort of feels like the reverse. Um, you might ha have cash to spend, uh, but find that it's not going as far. Um, so past outsized federal budgets have contributed to that, essentially by supporting people's incomes, but at, a, at the expense of the U.S. Treasury. Um, fiscal consolidation can essentially help reverse the demand-side component. Then on the supply side, um, you know, that's goods getting more expensive for real reasons, um, that is, uh, reasons that are, you know, bounded in, in the real world and the production of goods and services, um, not having to do with uh, financial or fiscal policy. Um, so, for example, the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine have created shortages of key commodities like food, energy, and fertilizer. And those supply-side shocks raise inflation and reduce living standards. But they also make it more challenging for the federal government uh, because um, a lot of entitlement commitments, they are essentially either explicitly or implicitly inflation-adjusted, either um, 
promised a benefit uh, with a cost of living adjustment, or maybe even um, a particular claim on real goods and services. And um, in that case, you know, the fact that, that um, dollars are more plentiful in the economy uh, doesn't really offset the fact that things are more expensive. It's just that things are more expensive and the government has to figure out a way to make that work. Um, so supply side shocks um, make the fiscal situation worse. The Federal Reserve has been raising the federal funds rate expeditiously this year um, in order to combat inflation and longer run interest rates, which in part reflect expectations of uh, what the Fed is going to do next, they've also risen dramatically. And interest rate figures, um, it's helpful to break them down into two components. There's both an expected inflation component and a real component. And the expected inflation component is critical to understand uh, because it, it shows that inflating away the debt doesn't really work. Um, you might think that um, as a debtor, as um, the U.S. government might be better off uh, having inflation happen uh, because the real value of the debt gets eroded. But because of the rising interest rates, uh, because lenders price in that expectation of higher inflation, um, essentially for any amount of real debt that uh, you incur, uh, you pay a higher uh, cost of capital on it going forward. And those effects approximately should cancel uh, finance-wise. Um, they might not always. You know, you might catch people by surprise with uh, some debt that was um, taken out at lower interest rates and then interest rates rise, and you get to enjoy the low interest rates for a while. For example, I'm doing that as a homeowner. Uh, but that's not a permanent solution because eventually the debt rolls over. Um, the real interest rate component is also important, and that is also rising. Uh, we can see from the um, uh, yields on inflation-protected treasury bonds uh, that real borrowing costs are about 1.6%, well above the zero uh, that we usually had around pre-pandemic times. And that rise is significant because it essentially directly impacts the trade-off between fiscal consolidation today and fiscal consolidation tomorrow. Um, if you uh, take a policy prescription that collects a tax or saves on a, a government program uh, by, by cutting its budget, um, and you use that to retire some debt, um, it's 17% more expensive uh, to do that 10 years from now than it is to do that today um, in real terms. And since paying bills late has essentially become more expensive, it becomes more worthwhile by comparison to pay them on time. Then there's also a subtle um, but important effect that also strengthens the case for fiscal consolidation and attempting to bring um, interest rates back down a little bit. Um, high, in high real interest rates divert dollars away from private investment by raising the cost of capital for firms. That's usually defined as a risk-free interest rate, which is kind of derived from uh, what the government debt looks like, um, plus a market rate premium, uh, market risk premium, because firms are more subject uh, to the um, ups and downs of the market than um, guaranteed treasury bonds. And um, if you raise the cost of capital for uh, firms, uh, this slows long, 
long-run growth uh, because for firms forgo investments. You raise their hurdle rates, and some things that used to be profitable no longer are. Um, you see this a lot in long-dated uh, sectors of the economy, things like housing. Uh, housing starts are declining. Uh, you see that in things like the startup world, uh, where they're mostly looking at, at the idea of earnings or benefits very far out. And if you change the trade-off between today and tomorrow, um, the economics of these looking into the future uh, private sector uh, participants in the economy, they don't work out as well. So that's why they pull back first. But in the long run, that makes it harder to finance good government programs because essentially um, you've forgone things that are actually important to people or things that would actually make a lot of money or things that, that would uh, make the future economy stronger. Um, in the face of these circumstances then, uh, the federal government should focus on fiscal sustainability and economic growth for the long haul, including careful attention to the balance sheet. Um, in terms of outright debt reduction, um, their options include major reforms to entitlement programs, uh, for example, for Medicare and private health care more broadly, uh, responsible consumer choice among competing private health plans uh, could help achieve quality affordable care, uh, social security's costs could be reined in with gradual reductions in benefits for the most affluent workers and with broader coverage of the payroll tax. Um, tax policy can be reformed by removing some preferential tax breaks to raise revenue in a fair and responsible manner. And additionally, Congress can commit to abiding by its regular budget process rather than resorting to stopgap measures that may result in increases in discretionary spending or incorporating pay-fors into its budget process. Um, and one more idea is that Congress can segment out uh, the unusually large debt that was incurred during the pandemic. Uh, there's about 5.3 trillion from the uh, six major relief bills and then an additional 1.3 trillion uh, just from essentially the government takes some losses during economic downturns and we would estimate that about 1.3 trillion of extra debt was incurred just by virtue of the economy being worse. Um, in sum, um, I'd say that the twin trends uh, mentioned here, the rising interest rates and the rising inflation, are both signs that fiscal decisions should be made especially judiciously in our current environment. Thank you. Now going to pass over to Mark, and I want to particularly thank Mark because uh, he was a very, very late call up to the panel, and we really appreciate you doing this at the last minute because we know you're very busy, uh, pretty much uh, very often seems like a one-man band trying to fight for fiscal sustainability within Washington. Uh, Jeff, you're in Boston, so we can't <laughs> count you. Well, thank you for having me. You are making me miss a miniature golf game right now, but I, I, sh I should be okay. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, over the course of the COVID pandemic, we borrowed about $5 trillion just to sort of fight the economic fallout. We borrowed another $20 trillion over the rest of US history, nothing to do with COVID mostly before it. So we are a very indebted nation and now is the time for a fiscal pivot. Now, I work for an organization called the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. I'm always saying that it's time for a fiscal pivot, but this time I really mean it. 
Um, <laughs> right. So our, our debt right now is about as large as the economy. If you look at most recent uh, projections from CBO, it's headed to about 110% of GDP after a decade, which is higher than after World War II, higher than our highest record. Uh, if you incorporate the student debt cancellation the president has proposed, expanded veterans benefits, the CHIPS bill, higher interest rates in the near term, it's headed to 120. Uh, if we further assume that interest rates remain elevated, GDP remains uh, sluggish, we extend various expiring tax cuts and health provisions and discretionary spending, we're maybe headed to 140, 150% of GDP. That is unheard of in the United States. Um, now, it's always been the case that our, as, as long as I've been working on this issue, uh, that our long-term debt has been an unsustainable trajectory. Um, but in the past, there's been a, a trade-off, a macroeconomic trade-off in, in addressing it. On the one hand, deficit reduction we know is good for sustainability, is good for medium and long-term growth, is good for interest rates. On the other hand, it comes at the expense of near-term demand. We don't have that problem right now. What we actually face is an inflation crisis. Uh, the inflation rate right now is the highest it's been in 40 years. Um, and there's not a lot of signs of, its, of it slowing down. There's some slowdown in goods inflation, but there's not a lot of signs that inflation is going to return to normal on its own. Now, inflation occurs at most simply when you have too much money chasing too few goods and, and services. And so anything we can do in fiscal policy to tamp down that inflation uh, is not going to hurt the economy, but actually going to help the economy. So a deficit reduction plan enacted now would, would have a few major benefits. First of all, um, it would directly help us fight inflation. The Federal Reserve is chiefly in charge of fighting inflation, but um, that doesn't mean that fiscal policy doesn't have a role to play, particularly when inflation is so high and there's such a high risk of persistence, either from expectations changes, wage price spirals, things like that. Secondly, and very related, Deficit reduction today can actually reduce the likelihood of a recession. Right now, the Fed is, is headed towards um, sort of uncharted territories. We are raising the rate well above its long-term neutral. That uh, puts certain sectors of the economy, like housing um, and the financial sector, at risk. Um, it um, can create financial instability. It does some things it's intended to do, um, but can still hurt the labor market. And so we're at high risk of recession. The more that fiscal policy helps, the more that monetary policy can slow down, not stop, but slow down a little bit, and that reduces our recessionary risk. Uh, again, related, deficit reduction can help us with our rising interest cost. Under that original CBO projection I mentioned to you, interest as a share of GDP is headed to about 3.5% by the end of the decade. That would be a national record for interest cost. Um, we are spending more on interest than we're spending on kids today. Within a decade, we'll be spending more on in interest than on defense. Within a quarter century, interest will be the single largest federal government program. And by the way, all of that is before incorporating the higher interest rates we've seen over the last four months. So we have an interest crisis in the brewing. Uh, the more we do to reduce debt, the more it both pulls down interest rates and reduces the debt that we're paying that interest on. And finally, uh, smart, thoughtful deficit reduction is key to long-term sustained economic growth. Uh, our debt is crowding out our public investment, excuse me, crowding out our private investment and shifting more of the returns to that investment abroad. Debt reduction is the exact inverse. It can speed the pace of economic growth, speed the pace of, of, of wage growth and help support investment. So we need deficit reduction and we need to start acting pretty fast. Uh, the worst thing, by the way, we can do is what we're doing right now, which is continue to add to the deficit with things like student debt cancellation um, and veterans bills and new kinds of tax cuts. Um, we just can't afford that at this moment from an inflation perspective. But of course, it matters how we do deficit reduction. 
And in light of the current inflation crisis, I would suggest we look at sort of three criteria. Number one, we need inflation reduction that's going to tamp down on demand. That can, that can occur through higher taxes, through cutting tax breaks, through lower transfer spending, or through lower reductions in, in federal spending. But, um, but we need to focus on getting demand under control. Number two, where possible, we should be directly focusing on price. There are certain prices that the federal government sets directly in the Medicare program when it, where it comes to federal procurement. In those areas, we can have an outsized impact on inflation, but not only reducing the spend, but reducing the actual cost of particular goods and services. There's other areas that we affect price indirectly. Through, for example, various subsidies, both in the budget and in the tax code. Uh, cutting some kinds of tax breaks, for example, uh, like the state and local tax deduction or mortgage deduction, not only will help us tamp down demand, but also can put downward pressure uh, on rising housing costs, similar to the health, health exclusion on healthcare costs. And then lastly, we need to focus on boosting supply. We should not pretend that we can solve the inflation crisis with the marginal effects that, that federal policy can have on the supply in the near term, but it can help push in the right direction when we have policies that are boosting labor supply, that are boosting investment, and more importantly, it can help our growth in the long run. And so that means looking at things like um, what kind of signals are we sending to workers about when to retire, about how much to, to save? What signals are we sending to businesses about when and how to invest? And how can we improve these to have stronger supply in the, more, in the near term and a more vibrant economic growth over time? So the time for deficit reduction, the time for the fiscal pivot is right now. Thank you. Romina. Well, I have good news. Um, can you hear me fine? Yes. Um, Congress brought back earmarks. I hear they're supposed to help them pass spending bills, so surely a, a grand bargain is just around the corner. Um, just kidding. I also noticed they put me on the far right side of the panel. I assume it's because I used to work for the Heritage Foundation. It might take me a while to, uh, to shield that, uh, that, that far right-wing coloring. Um, I found that there was a lot of bipartisan agreement on this panel, at least, which is um, very encouraging. I think the challenge we truly face is that we don't have politicians who think of themselves in a governing position, but more in a, in a service industry. And in that respect, I do think that they service their constituents well, because um, what, we, what we find is that um, voters are more likely to turn out if they receive direct distributive benefits from their politicians, and uh, they're more motivated by non-means-tested benefits. Um, and so we see this play out in the polls. We're heading toward an election just now. Voter turnout is highest among individuals 65 and older, who also happen to be the individuals who benefit from programs like Medicare and Social Security, which are our largest non-means-tested uh, programs. And those are also the programs that are driving us uh, toward this debt crisis. Um, if you look over the long-term horizon over the next 30 years, the, uh, the primary growth in spending is almost exclusively driven by Medicare, uh, that's number one, and then uh, Social Security. So we, we cannot fix this problem without entitlement reform. No matter what else you do, everything else is just uh, chump change. 
There is uh, there's some good news on the horizon. We may be heading for a period of divided government. Uh, we may see a repeat of the 116th Congress, which brought us uh, such fiscal restraints as the Budget Control Act, which imposed discretionary spending caps. Yes, this, those did not exactly fall on the programs that are driving the growth in spending, but at least we had some debate in Washington um, over spending levels, potential offsets, and trying to find some savings on the mandatory side of the ledger. I also think it's good to get politicians in the habit of not just doling out more money. I feel that they got into a very bad habit, especially during the pandemic, uh, with massive spending increases on the discretionary side and uh, one supplemental uh, emergency package after the next. And I know they're already working on one because of Hurricane Ian. And so there's a number of reforms that we will need um, to tighten our uh, budget across uh, the board. Um, in terms of uh, numbers, I just wanted to point out that, uh, as Ryan pointed out, we just hit $31 trillion in gross national debt. That is roughly $93,000 for every American. So if you have grandchildren or kids just entering school, that's $93,000 um, if we were to divide it evenly across the entire country. That is a massive amount uh, of debt. How exactly are we uh, supposed to be paying that back? And that's not what everyone's, nobody's even talking about. We're just talking about slowing the growth, ideally, uh, in, uh, in the debt. Um, Congress will not take action without some type of forcing mechanism. I'm very sorry, Mark. I would love it if, especially leading up to an election, they would agree on a deficit-reducing package. That just seems highly unlikely. So what are some potential action-forcing mechanisms on the horizon where we might see... Um, might see some fiscal action. So uh, one of the more common ones that uh, lawmakers have used in the past uh, to force spending cuts, fiscal restraints, occasionally spending caps, is uh, the debt limit. The debt limit is uh, at, um, it was set to at $31.4 trillion. We just reached $31.1 trillion. Um, we'll, we'll see exactly when the uh, U.S. Treasury runs out of its uh, statutory allowance to continue borrowing, but that sets up one potential uh, action-forcing mechanism. And uh, we need to take advantage of these action-forcing mechanisms because, as Jeff pointed out, once we are in a fiscal crisis where interest rates uh, rise steeply and significantly, where potentially we experience hyperinflation far worse than we've seen uh, just in the past few months, and where we might find ourselves in a scenario where um, foreign bondholders decide they just don't find treasuries to be such a good investment anymore, and they might dump them in the markets, we could find ourselves in a crisis situation very quickly that uh, we couldn't just inflate our way out of, as some on the left seem to think, that we don't need to worry about rising debt uh, and we don't need to worry about additional spending because, you know, we can just use this uh, magic money, money machine called modern monetary theory. And I think as we've learned uh, with the recent inflation bout, that has its costs and uh, is not a free lunch. So instead, we need to discuss real reforms and those action forcing mechanisms are our best opportunity because alternatively, we'll have to make decisions in a crisis and those are likely to be less than ideals and might actually 
make the situation worse in the short and long run. So what are some of those changes? Uh, I think we should bring back spending caps because they were beneficial. So return of 2011, there are some reforms I would like to see. A, a, an across-the-board discretionary spending cap would be better than individual caps on discretionary uh, defense and non-defense, uh, but those are details. Uh, but if we uh, are going to have spending caps, we also need to be aware that lawmakers will be looking um, very hard at ways to circumvent those spending caps. And one of the easiest ways for them to do so, a loophole, is the emergency spending provisions. So we should also tighten the rules around emergency spending provisions such that they don't get abused for non-emergency spending in an attempt to avoid caps. Um, so put real limits on emergency spending and pre-fund those disasters that we can predictably, uh, that we predictably know will occur. But importantly, because m most of the growth in spending and the debt is driven by entitlement programs, we need to get to a point where we have a bipartisan commission with expedited uh, voting authority to reform Social Security and Medicare. I don't think we can um, reform these programs without bipartisan support. Everyone needs to be in on it, or it's most likely not going to happen. And the most, uh, uh, the direction that those um, changes need to take very much involve making the programs more progressive, fo focusing benefits on those individuals who need them most. There are a variety of more indirect ways of doing so, such that we don't discourage capital formation, um, and also increasing the retirement age um, Life, as life expectancy has, has gone up. But really importantly, I think that we, we should not be relying on politicians to be making those changes as life expectancy increases, et cetera, but rather adopt automatic triggering mechanisms such that these programs adjust uh, with such factors like indexing for longevity instead of relying on politicians to make such legislative uh, changes. Um, so I, I want to be optimistic because we really have no other option. And, um, and, and so, you know, maybe earmarks will grease the skids for a grand bargain. I won't hold my breath on that. But more importantly, we do have an opportunity, especially in the next Congress, to focus on fiscal restraint. And um, we know how to do it. We just need to get the politicians uh, on board with it. And for that, I think we need uh, the American public because that's who politicians listen to. It comes down to caring about the debt, and then we know the mechanisms for how to fix it. Thank you. Well, Romina, I'm going to see your optimism and, and dump our big bucket of pessimism back into the conversation. Um, Mark, my first question really is to you. You mentioned deficit reduction. Alan mentioned fiscal consolidation. I'm having a sense of deja vu. Those of us who were living in Europe in the early 2010s, bunch of governments engaged in deficit reduction. They front-loaded taxes. They promised to cut spending at a later date. We described it as the St. Augustine approach to deficit reduction. Lord, give me fiscal discipline, but not yet. And... Um, what that led to, I think, in many countries was um, a kind of scattergun, salami-slicing approach to various budgets. A lot of those uh, budgets have since increased. It was like politically unsustainable. Those countries um, still have debt levels that are relatively high, and they still have the terrible long-term outlook. So it isn't fiddling around with you know, the odd bit of deficit reduction in five years in the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever. Isn't that all a sideshow to what 
Jeff was talking about, until we actually grapple with the central problem, which is the runaway entitlements, all of this other stuff is just noise. We cannot fix our long-term debt situation if we don't get the rising cost of healthcare under control and we don't find a way to, to fund and slow the growth of Social Security. But um, I would actually push back pretty strongly against the claim that that makes revenue and discretionary spending a sideshow. I think that's an excuse that's been used over and over again by politicians to increase discretionary spending, which, by the way, has been the fastest growing part of the budget um, over the last five years if you remove COVID stuff since 2017. And it's been an excuse to cut taxes over and over again. And before, you know, I mean, all said and done, we've done a combined about 2% of GDP of changes in the wrong direction on revenue and discretionary spending, maybe 2.5%. It takes a long time of slowing healthcare growth to get that much gain. So no, I don't think we can ignore the other parts of the budget, even though the entitlements are are the long-term key. And to be clear, I was playing devil's advocate. I don't necessarily agree with that position. But, you know, Jeff, Libertarians have been sounding the alarm about the federal debt um, for years, for decades. Um, Japan has much higher levels of public debt relative to GDP. It's not a particularly kind of dynamic growing economy, but it's a pretty nice place, and they seem to have kind of settled with it. Um, why should we actually care about this? And why, why do we assume there has to be some sort of fiscal crisis when there hasn't been in an aging population like Japan? So Japan is one observation that is indeed a bit puzzling. There are some special features that may help explain it. But we also have data on a whole huge set of countries over centuries, if not millennia. It's work done by uh, two of my colleagues, Carmen Reinhardt, used to be at Harvard, is now at the World Bank, and Ken Rogoff. And they've documented that many, many countries have had fiscal crises when their deficits and debts uh, got beyond a certain point. in particular, they also documented that it was very hard to predict based on anything that was obviously observable when it was going to happen. It was going to happen, but it always seemed to come as a surprise and come out of nowhere. That's true of Greece in recent memory. If you had plotted the interest rates on US debt and Greece debt up until 2009, they looked incredibly similar until boom, all of a sudden they were not. Something triggered it and then there was the panic. So in addition, We now do have the early warning sign in the US, the rising interest rates. You can't forecast that perfectly, as Jason was discussing. But I think overall, Japan is an outlier, but the vast majority of the evidence says that we do get these crises. It's hard to predict exactly when. And Romina, um, Mark kind of discussed deficit reduction as if there was a symmetric case for tax rises just as much as uh, spending cuts. I know that when you were at Heritage, you guys did a lot of research looking at the experience of uh, Europe in, in, in deficit reduction and the impacts that had on output growth. What sort of lessons do you think we can learn from those examples of what successful deficit reductions look like? Yeah, um, if I can quickly respond to the Japan point, because I find that also very interesting. Um, one key difference is that um, most of the the debt, uh, the Japanese uh, federal debt, is held by its domestic population. You have an incredibly high savings rate that is not reflective of what's going on in the United States, and that makes um, the Jap- Japanese situation more robust in the sense that it's their own population um, lending. To, to their government, whereas in the United States context, we have a, a context with a much larger uh, percentage of our debt held in foreign markets, 
and uh, some of that held by um, you know, allies, adversaries, a combination of the two, um, where we are just in a very different situation. But on the point regarding taxes and spending cuts, I, I think I know Mark well enough that uh, I don't think he's suggesting um, that we need similar sized spending reductions, especially in the entitlement programs, to tax increases because the math on that is just uh, is just doesn't work out that way. The entitlement programs are growing much much faster. It's not sustainable uh, to raise taxes uh, as a percentage of GDP by a significant amount. The United States has never managed to do that, even with very different and higher tax rates, such as uh, 90% uh, on the highest uh, earners. Um, we find that tax uh, revenue inflows are surprisingly robust, even as uh, marginal tax rates have fluctuated over the course of U.S. history. Um, with that in mind, it, uh, it's, um, I think that politically you will probably end up having to make some concessions on, on the tax front in order to get a bipartisan deal done. Um, and, uh, but that's a very different conversation from what role do taxes play versus what do entitlement reductions play. And in the European context, um, as Jeff alluded to earlier, if you, if you raise taxes in an attempt to do fiscal consolidation, you also run the risk of slowing economic growth, which actually ends up undermining your goals of fiscal consolidation because economic growth helps you do that. So it is much more efficient to tackle the spending side and particularly growth in programs that contribute to economic inefficiency, such as encouraging people to retire early, which is what Social Security and Medicare do, encouraging people to consume an excess amount of healthcare services, even when doing so doesn't make sense anymore. Um, so the, it's much more efficient to tackle the spending side and much more robust in the long run. I think, Jeff, you wanted to come in. Uh, there's always a paper that also got published as a research brief by Cato uh, by a former colleague named Alberto Alessina, precisely about the European uh, fiscal austerity measures. Um, the standard Keynesian model says that cutting spending okay, reduces GDP by a pretty big amount. There's a big multiplier effect. Okay? Raising taxes also reduces GDP by, by a smaller extent. Okay, so traditional Keynesian thinking is it's better to raise taxes to reduce deficits, but his analysis of the European experience with data over 30 or 40 years was very different, that the effects of the spending cuts on GDP on future growth were much smaller than traditional Keynesian multipliers predicted, and that so you got GDP growth coming back faster and more robustly when you cut spending, okay, as if you were attempting to engage in austerity, and so that was definitely the way to go completely. Supportive. I mean, if I could jump in there, um, it, it matters why that conclusion um, um, was reached because we're in a very different environment now than in 2010. We want to slow the demand side of the economy. And so um, that can be done on the tax side and the spending side. If it turns out that taxes were more effective at slowing demand, which was bad in 2010, that would be good now, for example. What we should be thinking about is not taxes and spending, but what are the specific policies that are going to get us the strongest growth. And I think Romina mentioned um, a few, where can we get healthcare costs down? Where can we encourage longer work? But there is many in the tax side as well, where we have a, a, uh, the tax code subsidizes inefficient and bad behavior in a, in a number of ways, including various deductions for mortgage interest, uh, exclusion for healthcare. The way that we tax capital gains is totally backwards. So I, I think there's room on both sides of the ledger. 
Yeah, of course, taxes have impacts on both supply and demand. And a lot of European countries have had very, very slow productivity growth as well. Now, I'm not saying that's all down to the high taxes, but um, certainly in some countries, there were some bad tax rises as part of those deficit reduction packages. Alan, I'm going to be a bit mean, and I've told you I was going to be a bit mean, so you, you know what's yeah, coming. You wrote a piece in August 2021 entitled, Sorry Deficit Hawks, Low Interest Rates Are Here to Stay. Um, <laughs> in it, though, you critique the idea that deficits would lead to a loss of investor and creditor confidence. Now, obviously, we're in a very different world now for a whole variety of reasons. My basic question is, Paul Krugman had a piece earlier this week where he said, actually, the fundamentals that drove low real interest rates, demographics, slow productivity growth, all the other kind of long-term headwinds are still there. And so actually, we would imagine over time, the interest rate, the path of interest rates will return to something like the path of interest rates before. Is Paul Krugman right? Or are the bond markets right? Um, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I'm going to split the difference here and not, not come down strongly on either side, but let, let's talk about what web evidence is weighing on each side. Um, two very, very disruptive events have happened in my lifetime, um, or it, it recently, um, some of the most disruptive events of my lifetime. We have essentially the worst war in Europe of my lifetime, and um, the COVID-19 pandemic was even more disruptive than that. Um, and what I've begun to learn um, now seeing two of these events in the past three years is that um, governments react to them in a, a particular way, or at least they have reacted in a particular way, um, which is um, even though the world has gotten worse, they attempt to preserve the standard of living uh, to which their citizens are accustomed. And they do that through financial support, through sending out checks, um, things like that, um, through subsidizing um, costs of, of energy, which are spiking because of the war. Um, and the problem with that, if you kind of think from a uh, grand, real goods and services perspective is, well, if you're producing less, how do you consume the same? You might think that's completely impossible, and it's close to impossible, but there are a few outlets. Uh, you can try uh, importing a lot, um, and that way your people uh, can enjoy imports. They produce um, less than they consume, but they shed financial assets. Um, not everyone can do that. Um, around the world in total, the balance of trade is precisely even. And the other thing you can do um, is you can have your central bank raise interest rates um, which chokes off some investment-related activities and some debt finance consumption um, in order to uh, keep down the, the cost of goods and services and largely uh, try to preserve consumption. Um, the problem with that is, well, um, once interest rates are up, uh, you've changed the calculus of, of um, you know, what, what's good and bad policy, um, the, the trade-off between the future and the present is different. Um, and obviously, now that we've had two of these events in, in a row, one of which uh, I'll note came after I, I wrote uh, the, the piece that I did, um, it seems to me a little more likely that, well, maybe this is going to be a recurring pattern, the, that you know, sometimes bad things will happen in the world, bad supply shocks, and governments will respond by trying to make everything okay. 
uh, by trying to preserve consumption, and they'll find that they can't um, in, in total uh, without choking off investment or otherwise um, experiencing some painful trade-offs. But that said, you know, these are temporary events, um, at least um, to some degree. And um, over the long run, what, what I, I saw back in um, the 2010s, um, as late as 2021, and maybe going into the future, is that um, in some ways, lenders need borrowers as much as borrowers need lenders. Um, there are a lot of people um, in the developed world who are expecting to live longer than ever and on longer retirements than ever. And um, what they do is they either save money on their own behalf in things like 401ks or by proxy in pension funds. And those pension funds just keep on buying financial assets, even if um, the price or the risk profile seems poor in some ways. And they're just forced to accept it. Uh, because what are you going to do? Are you going to spend down your retirement fund uh, just because you feel that um, that either firms aren't offering you a good enough PE ratio or countries aren't being fiscally responsible enough? Um, you need borrowers to some degree as much as uh, borrowers need you. And the fact that so many people are aging, especially in Japan, which we've mentioned, uh, Japan's kind of far out there on, on the... Um, uh, long longevity and aging curve. Um, you've got you've got people who are going to take relatively uh, poor conditions for investment if that's all that they can get, um, and that dynamic is still there. It hasn't gone anywhere, uh, but it's a little bit like you know after one disruption you can say uh, well things will return to normal, but after two um, you you begin to wonder um, well. Um, that this is a, a trend that's recurred at least once. And you don't want to be that guy who feels like you understood the world uh, that you grew up in. And any day now, things will return back to the world that you understand. Uh, no, we're, we're in different territory now. That's how I feel about 90s music. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Um, we have got time for just a few questions. What I'm going to do, actually, is I'm going to take two at once, and then the panelists can answer whichever they prefer. So gentlemen here uh, in the middle table, and then the gentleman, uh, I don't know, behind him, at the back of the room. Hi. Um, I'm going to preface my question by saying that I worked as a government bond trader for about 40 years, or 35 years. And I think that you guys are optimistic, because I, I do not think you're taking into consideration the structure of the capital markets, and maybe five, six, seven dealers do 50-odd percent of the business in the government bond market. And we could have a financial crisis and a collapse of confidence any day now. We could have it within five years. That's precisely what happened in the 1970s. And there were always supply shocks. Supply shocks always happen when inflation gets out of control. And inflation gets out of control because the Fed doesn't do its job. So we're in a structurally a very similar situation to where we were in the 1970s. Go back and get the Wall Street Journal and read it from 1970s, and it's going to read like it reads today. So I don't think you're taking into consideration how fragile the financial structure is underneath the headlines. And that's why I think more has to be done now. Thank you. Um, and the gentleman at the back. 
So I have a question about the psychology of policymaking. So Danny Kahn and Avis Tversky have this concept of a prospect theory, which is that loss stings at least twice as much and up to 10 times as much as a gain. So loss hurts a lot more. When you're talking about fiscal reform and entitlement reform, you're talking about people losing things. So these are things that are going to be painful in part because some people will be hurt by these things. So as much as we might agree with the substance of the policies, how do you think about talking to the people that are hurt by these things? And how do you think about talking to the policymakers who would have to enact these things, knowing that the people that are hurt by them aren't going to be so keen and might vote them out of office? So uh, that question I'll summarize is how do you talk about the potential for default on promises that people have been made? So do you want to, each of us takes one? No, no, no. Well, you can answer. You, I want somebody to answer that question and then I'll ask the other question. <laughs> I wish I knew. If I knew the answer to the second question, I could be making a lot more money than I am <laughs> right now, be a lot more successful. But um, I, I think it's helpful to do I think it's helpful to deliver bad news with good news. So I think if you're going to raise the retirement age, it should be in the context of making Social Security solvent, right? So you can deliver a positive. If you're going to tackle Medicare, it should be in the context of making sure people's premiums are actually going to be lower because their health care costs are lower. So that's not a solution, but that's the best I got. And what do you make of the question about the fragility of, of bond markets and the structure of bond markets? I was quite taken aback by the scale of the reaction to the Brit uh, recent mini budget in Britain that cut taxes. I mean, we expected borrowing costs to go up, but it caused a lot of convulsions. Is that evidence out there that actually this, the bond markets are a lot more fragile than we perhaps, uh, perhaps think on this stage? I'll leave it I, I think there's panel. always, um, I think there's always a risk of a financial panic um, and there's only so much that central banks can do. So I don't put that risk high, but if there's a very low probability risk that's repeated over and over again in escalating circumstances, it starts to become scary, even if that risk is very low. So the cautionary thing to do um, is to is to lower the heat. I don't have an answer to the fragility. I don't know the details nearly as much as you do. I have a response to that sort of issue, which is employers, governments, everybody should stop providing retirement help in the form of pensions, defined benefit plans. They should all be 401k, at most 401k, because then you're not in this soup. People put money in, they own whatever is there, and the value goes down, the value goes down, but you don't have a huge pension fund that can have these runs of this kind that we just saw in the UK. Another point on the fragility of the bond market and um, inflationary times and the 1970s in particular. Um, I mentioned before that interest rates have both the real and expected inflation component. Um, and this has kind of an interesting and perverse effect on uh, what central banks have to deal with. Uh, because um, if you have high inflation, you want to um, hike interest rates in order to uh, tamp it down. Uh, but actually, uh, because inflation is high and perhaps expected inflation is high as well, um, you might have to raise rates by more than you think in order to get the same real rate that you did before, uh, because that expected inflation component is larger. Um, and if you 
aren't ahead of the game and inflation keeps rising, uh, the target rate that you need, uh, just even to get the same neutral real rate, keeps on going up. And that's why uh, people who remember the 1970s have extraordinary stories about mortgages. And we are starting to get some extraordinary stories here. Um, but there was a great moderation in between where inflation was under control. And that, that's why people are so nervous about inflation and the Fed is so eager uh, to head it off. To the I, question about... Um, sorry, could we take... I just want to take one more question. Okay. I'm conscious of the fact that this guy has been waiting for a long time. So could we get a question here? Let's. We're going to have to make it a short question with a yeah, short answer. Really, really quick, the entitlements... I seem to be a lot of uh, recently a lot of articles about corruption and uh, pe people getting stuff, and I seem to remember, um, you know, the Social Security has all these people over 100 years old getting money, and I wonder is, in your knowledge, is the bureaucracy doing anything to 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 close out those accounts? I mean, we don't have tens of thousands of people over 100 years old, but somehow somebody's taken that money, and that I, I think the inflation on. Um, using that nasty word, on, uh, on the entitlement program is something that uh, should be looked at. Um, yes, there need to be updates made to things like the death master file to make sure that people aren't collecting benefits on behalf of individuals who are already dead. I wish there were more savings to be had there. It is a fairly small portion of overall spending in Social Security, even though it um, it, it, it will raise headlines uh, to the point of how do we how do we sell these reforms if they mean losses for people? Well, usually they happen in the context of, for example, the Social Security Trust Fund running out of money, which will bring about automatic spending cuts of about 20 percent, which would be direct benefit cuts for beneficiary. And so then you have that alternative scenario to overcome and say, OK, we're going to do these other things instead. And we'll particularly protect individuals who are already in or near retirement. We've seen that uh, proposals like that made uh, among politicians. Um, and you can also um, um, highlight how you're going to increase, especially for younger generations, their ability to save for their own retirement and accounts that they own and control, and where they can actually uh, set aside less of their income and see greater gains by uh, taking advantage of growth in the marketplace, for example, and in, in Medicare or other health care, increasing individuals' choice uh, such that they can get quality care at lower cost. There's some low-hanging fruit there as well um, that are reforms that you want to pair with uh, eligibility changes. Well, thank you. This is an incredibly long-term problem and one that uh, Cato is continually uh, keen to draw more attention to. And I appreciate the work that all of you guys have done over the years to write and think about this issue as well. Thank you uh, so much for this panel. We're going to go straight into um, the final speech. I'm just going to have a couple of minutes to, to talk to our next speaker and get the stage um, cleared away a bit. So do stand up and stretch your legs. But if you could thank these four speakers in the appropriate way.